Hey, Katie. Hey, Jesse. How's it going? I'm okay. Do you ever hate yourself when you're like writing or revising something? Constantly. That is the only emotion I experience when I'm when I'm working. Yeah. I thought you were just going to say that's the only emotion I experience, which would have been a whole other thing. <laughs> it's true, actually. Depends on the day, but I'd say three weeks out of the out of the month. I'm I'm finishing up a book and I'm sort of entering the stage where it's just like rereading what you've written over and over and over, making small edits, trying to figure out what to change, what to keep. And like, it just makes me hate myself. Like, don't get me wrong. I, I think it'll be a good book and I'm very lucky to have a great editor, but um, being forced to read your own writing over and over is torture. It's horrible. Dude, it's a little bit like being forced to listen to your voice over and over, like when you're editing a podcast, just absolute torture. Yeah. I, um, it's so weird to me that I have any friends, just given how I talk. It's weird to me too. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. What, uh, can you remind me the name of the podcast? Blocked, blocked something. Blocked party? Nope, nope. nope. Blocked, blocked and reported. That's it. I am Jesse Single. And I'm Katie Herzog. And I uh, met someone on the beach today, a, a woman who um, was what I would call maybe a normie. This woman was maybe in her 60s and she had her dogs out and I had my dog out. So the dogs were playing. And we were sort of making small talk and she asked me what I do for a living. And I said, you know, I'm, a, I'm basically an unemployed writer. I lost my job um, in the pandemic, but I, I've got a, a podcast now. And she asked me the name of it. And when I told her, it was just this look of like utter confusion on her face, which <laughs> makes me realize that the name only works if you're hyper online. I like I think my parents are probably they haven't said anything about it. I think they've probably listened to the podcast, but they're probably like, what the fuck does this mean? Yeah. I don't think we need to explain it though. If you get it, you get it. Yeah, maybe it wasn't a good marketing decision, but uh we're too far down that road now. Yeah. So Katie, I have a question for you, and there's only two answers. Are riots A good, B bad? You have to decide, and if you make the wrong choice, you're a bad person. Three, two, one. Oh God. Ooh, oh man, got her canceled. <laughs> Did you hear that? Did you hear that? I tried to say it so quietly that nobody could hear it. We are going to discuss riot discourse today. I guess before we get into it, let's do the the normal housekeeping. Uh, you can reach out to us to yell at us at blockedandreportedpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Patreon at patreon.com slash blockedandreported, and we're on Twitter at the bar pod. This is sort of a bonus episode because we already released our episode this week. So we're going to do more or less a full-length free episode. And then we're going to continue the conversation going uh, for our Patreon. So definitely check that out and consider giving us your hard-earned money. Yeah. Who could deserve it more than us? Hard to come up with any names. But Riot Discourse has been a very interesting thing to watch unfold on Twitter, hasn't it? It really has. It, you know, if you had told me a week ago that the pandemic would not be the biggest clusterfuck of 2020, I would have been very shocked. I would have thought like Trump came out as a woman or something like that. Like what could possibly <laughs> be crazier than a fucking global pandemic? Well, turns out race riots. Do you know that? Do you know the monkey paw meme? No, I don't. It's like it's like this. um trope from sort of scary movies where some cursed object fulfills your wish but there's a dark twist so it's like if a week ago one of us was like i wish just for a break from all this coronavirus news and then the monkey got it just, yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> uh so i mean I, we should probably be clear just for accuracy and transparency it does seem like the ratio of nonviolent protesting all over the country is pretty high compared to the ratio of rioting but in many ways 
it seems to be in almost everyone's interest online to focus on the rioting, right? Yeah, and I, I think at this point, forty state or forty cities have instituted um, some sort of curfew. Um, so there is definitely repercussions, regardless of whether or not the majority of protesters are being peaceful. Um, shit is happening in in Seattle over the weekend. I think sixty businesses downtown um, were, you know roused and looted um and in the midst of a pandemic so shit is crazy did you say razzed yeah is that what, is that what it's, ra- it's raised razzing right, right. is like making fun of someone like i'm razzing you well that that too that too <laughs> they, were, they were they were lightheartedly ripping the uh <laughs> and then they burned them down yes <laughs> they canceled them and then they burned and looted them hilarious times uh <laughs> What was interesting as we were discussing offline was it seemed like almost overnight, maybe two or three days ago, we're recording this on Monday, the sort of intelligentsia on Twitter were very strictly enforcing the rule or the the norm that you shouldn't say anything bad about the rioting. You shouldn't suggest it could have negative consequences. This was just sort of common sense because obviously everyone who's rioting is doing it for a good reason. Obviously, it will lead to good things in the future. I mean, I'm exaggerating, but only a little bit. But then basically overnight, this just flipped, right? Yeah. Now it's the the Russians, the white supremacists, and a small number of white men in skinny jeans known as Antifa. The most annoying of all, white men yeah. in skinny jeans known as Antifa. What, yeah. what, what do you think accounted for this? Because it was like a lot of – we're not the only people that have pointed this out. Like uh, Wesley Gang had a really good tweet about it for one, but it was like whiplash-inducing. Uh, I think probably just the scope of the destruction spread. It spread to more cities. I mean, Antifa has a presence in Seattle, and so anytime there's a there's any sort of protest, um, you'll see you'll see this group of people. This is a, a more true in Portland than here, but there's also a presence here. But this is typically the you know the damage done is sort of minor, um, but what we're seeing now is not minor. So I think probably the scope of it, it just becomes harder to say this is a you know um, sort of a, a minor problem, all in the name of the greater good. When you have, for instance, you know minority-owned businesses being burned down and looted, it was weird to me. A lot of my arguments about sort of media come down to class divides. And to me, there was this ugly thing, as there has been in the past, where people whose neighbor, whose personal neighborhoods where they live are not going to get torched or burned down, who will not lose access to their Target or their bodega, being a little bit glib about that happening in other places. And that that doesn't mean either that there's no moral complexity here or B, that I want to like crack down on random rioters taking flat screen TVs, which frankly, I do not view as a priority. But the the whole way like identity works is interesting because in some contexts, you can't say X or Y because you lack the right identity characteristic. But then you saw white people being like, cool, cool. They're torching, you know, inner city neighborhoods. And I, I, that that disturbed me because I don't think people know what like even even something like a Target where, yes, it's a big company. Yes, they probably have insurance like that's you know that could be fifty or hundred people's jobs, and it actually has repercussions for people who aren't sitting on their asses on Twitter from the comfort of their own. Right, home. 
I mean, people use these businesses, you know, not everybody gets grocery delivery. I have seen a lot of this on on Twitter, you know, people sort of making fun of people for um, defending a target or whatever. Well, maybe the target is the one place to get groceries or to get groceries in this neighborhood. You know, I mean, once these businesses go out of business, it might be different for a giant corporation like Target. But, you know, we've seen this before. Once these businesses are are burned down, are looted, if, once they go out of business for any reason in poor neighborhoods, they don't always come back. It can take decades for these for these places to rebound after an event like this. It was also weird watching some white commentators trying to sort of the main flaw in my mind with like with identitarianism is it lumps people all together. So so they just sort of spun these narratives where it's like, well, yeah, if there's video of like of people looting AutoZone, it's because they're so pissed off about police violence and injustice. And it's like a, the vast, vast majority of people of any color aren't looting AutoZone. They're coming up with other ways to express their outrage. B, it's just sort of like condescending that to say like, yeah, that's what's going on. They're not just sort of normal human beings doing the fucked up shit normal human beings do when when order disorder descends. They're they're freedom fighters by looting or burning down the AutoZone. It's just it it's just again this disconnect between how people really are and the performances we put on on social media about sort of other groups particularly like lower power groups yeah absolutely the seattle mayor yesterday um put out a tweet basically blaming the entirety of the riots on white men and you know i watched the video um from downtown seattle and there's certainly that's seattle there's certainly a lot of white people but in terms of who is doing the looting I'd say it was a pretty diverse crowd, um, but this becomes, you know, a convenient narrative for everybody. If you, you know, if you blame the, if you blame the white guy, then it sort of excuses the behavior of everybody else. And you can do that in a way without appearing to be racist yourself. Right. Nothing more wonderfully captures our beautiful tapestry than the fact that all humans like to riot sometimes. I yeah. Mean, come on. That's just it's who we are as a species. I don't like crowds or I'd be down there myself. You need to come up with some form of rioting that just where you can sort of riot by yourself. A quiet riot. I'll do what uh, what all of the other white people in my Instagram feed are doing is just post many, many memes. I think that's the that seems to be a contest among the, the Karens and the Beckys and the, the Sharons in my Instagram feed. The more memes, the more anti-racist you are. Do the do the memes give you instructions about how to do better? Yes, they do. They're very instructive. A lot of it includes reading Robin D'Angelo. Um, I'm tempted to respond to those memes and uh, send send these people uh, Kalafasani's review of Robin D'Angelo's book that I have so far restrained myself. Yeah, I actually have like a whole rant about D'Angelo. Let's save that for the patrons only part, just because I want to like build up to it. But the I mean, I guess people just want to help somehow, but yeah. there's so much of it that feels so narcissistic and solipsistic. Like it's performative. It's so performative. Like, do we need more? It, what the difference between America now and where we want it to be? What difference would it make if another ten thousand white people from the suburbs get into circles and talk about their privilege? Like, we've been through multiple generations of these sorts of trainings, and what do they do? Well, you know, I mean, there's evidence on this. You know, there there are implicit bias trainings in, for instance, police departments, and they haven't been shown to do much to, you know, <laughs> to reduce racist policing. There are things that you can do to, re- to you know, reduce the number of, of brown people who are stopped and harassed by cops, but implicit bias training does not appear to be one of them. 
I think I think just being online is like fundamentally unhealthy at a time like this. I know people feel like they need to be tuned into every twist and turn, but I I actually don't think you do. And for a long time, I've watched like people, including some people I know. It it really seems like honestly, Twitter worsens their mental health, and that's a really tough thing to prove scientifically because like maybe people who already struggle are drawn to Twitter, but watching people just mainline all this misery and destruction, and also whatever weird conspiracy theory pops into their heads about white supremacists or Antifa or whoever else, they just, they can always find evidence to like prove it. Cause like whatever you want to prove, someone will get you that evidence or you can find it. And I just, I think this is all having a really unhealthy effect on people. And one manifestation of that is just this sort of um, compulsive sharing of like of memes and, and awareness. And it's all, it doesn't accomplish anything. You know, and it also, it. It perpetuates a single narrative, you know, and I want to I want to bring up some optimistic points here. So I was reading a piece by Coleman Hughes, who's a, a young black scholar um, called The Case for Black Optimism. And and Coleman brings up some really good points. And, and I want to I want to bring these up as well. And I, I do this sort of knowing the risk, because the risk is that when you tell people that things aren't as bad as they think. You can seem tone deaf. You can seem racist. Um, obviously, I'm a white person. I don't know what it's like to you know, to live in a black body um, and to experience the particular hardships that black people face. Um, but we do have some, some reasons to be optimistic. And so I want to bring these up um, because I think people need to like, feel good about something right now. And and I and I say this now because this is one of the things that I sort of want to say to my my fellow white people, my friends, when they're when they're sharing these memes. Um, I don't do it because mostly I don't want to engage in conversation with them. But I'm just going to like tell you some statistics. Um, okay, so since 2005, the number of unarmed black people killed in the United States has gone down. Remarkably. So in 2005, and this is, I think Ferguson was in 2014, right? Yeah, that sounds right. Okay. So after Ferguson, the year after that, there were over 100 unarmed black people killed um, killed in the U.S. Last year in 2009, that number was nine, and it's gone steadily down. So this was not a, this was not a you know a, a blip in the statistics. It's it's been going steadily down for for years. Okay, so that's a good thing, right? So last year there were nine black people killed, unarmed black people killed by police, which is actually less than the number of unarmed white people killed by police. Um, I think that number was like 19, and obviously like there's some disproportionate effects there via you know population. But regardless, like both of those numbers are like pretty low for a country with 300 million people and just as many guns as there are people. So from 2001 to 2017, the incarceration rate for black men declined by 34 by 34%. Um, and that's, it's like, that's overall, but it's even higher for young black men. So uh, during that same time period for black men, 25 to 29, it decreased by 56%, 24 or 20 to 24 by 60% and 18 to 19, it declined by 72%. And that's like a similar story for young black women. Between 2001 and 2017, the birth rate for, for black teenagers declined by 63%. Death rate among the black population is down. Life expectancy is up. Um, education is way up between the years 1999 and 2017. The number of black students who earn bachelor's degrees increased by 82%. Um, 60% of blacks at every level of education say they're doing better financially than their parents. So this is all good news. When you compare those numbers 
to white outcomes, they're way lower. And that's a problem, right? But the thing is, white outcomes are also there's been a, there's been some blips in this like um life expectancy for whites has gone down but for the most part white people are also doing better and they're not doing disproportionately better they're also doing better from a base of like 20 years ago and so when you compare black populations now to black populations 20 years ago there's really remarkable positive effects right like things are actually much better when you compare them to white populations less so but it's a little bit like comparing apples and oranges because whites are starting out at a different level and and I just want to point out re- really quickly but um not to interrupt but like I, I'm looking at a similar sort of similar article on 538 by I'm going to butcher his name because I'm terrible with name, but Samuel Sinangwe, who's like a really well-respected – Coleman is viewed as like he's, – he's like centrist. Yeah, he's viewed as like far-right bullshit. He's not far-right. But this article I'm looking at on 538 says police are killing fewer people in big cities but more people in suburban and rural America, which is complicated but points in the same direction that like by certain measures, there's been some improvement. I think that this is important to note because I think people are unaware of this. Completely. And I don't think that that you and I having this conversation on this podcast is going to change that at all. I don't think that, you know, um, John McWhorter and Glenn Lowry having the public, like, this conversation on their podcast, even though they're, they're black, is going to like put this message out at all. The message that we get from the media is a totally different story, which is that black people are doing worse than they have been doing, um, that there's this, this, you know, white supremacy is in the air. It affects everything that people do. And that might be true. It totally might be true. You know, and and I should also note, like, black people might not be killed at vastly higher propor- proportions than white people, but they are stopped, stopped at higher proportions. The use of force is way higher among black populations. We talked about this last week, but black yeah. people are routinely harassed um, by cops in a way that white people aren't. But there's lots of good news here. And so this... These protests, these riots happening right now, I think lack a little bit of historical perspective because of the video, because the video is so damning. And when you see videos yeah. like this, it, it's it's confirmation bias, right? If you believe that the world is is inherently or that the United States is inherently and inextricably racist, that this is a, a nation built on white supremacy and maintained with white supremacy, and you see this video of course you're going to, you know, this is going to confirm that, confirm that, that idea already. Of course you're going to want to write. People are justifiably angry, but the video shows a pretty rare event, a terrible event for sure, but a rare one. People have trouble with that in any circumstance. It's just, it's absolutely, absolutely human nature. And the, the comparison I use for a much bigger event that like obviously killed way more people was like, 9-11 was one horrible terrorist attack and it, it just rerouted the entire country. And suddenly we we literally thought this like small schmucky band of terrorists across the world were an existential threat to the most powerful nation in history. That's like, right. that's how our brains get hijacked. And like, this is right. a little bit different, of course, because we're talking about bad policing and what is supposed to be the best and freest country in the world. And like you said, millions of people have horrible interactions with the cops every day, but it's just um, I, some of the tweets I saw from experts, like, uh, I mean, I'll just name a couple. Like Nicole Hannah-Jones said that that young whites have sort of racial attitudes just as problematic as their parents, suggesting like no progress. And that's like – I don't see – It's not true. Evidence. It's not true. And then, you know, Kevin Cruz, who's a really good and well-respected historian, is basically – he does this tweet storm with some interesting parallels to like the Chicago riots of 1968. I think 11 people died there alone. And then he says that in the 50 years since then – 
he phrases it in a slightly fuzzy way, but any, any sort of um, non-expert person would read his tweets and make it, it makes it sound like policing has gotten worse since 1968, which it has not by any means. No, absolutely not. I mean, I think that we have a, there's sort of a risk of us pointing this out. You know, I've been, I've been nervous about this conversation because I don't want us to be perceived as sort of diminishing um, the pain that, that black communities are feeling for sure. But on the other hand, like, we have all of this data and this data shows us that things are getting better. You know, I mean, Steven Pinker, he wrote an entire book sort of making this argument that that humanity is actually doing better and people just sort of dismissed him or, you know, said that it was his white privilege that allowed him to say this. Um, but like if we look at the data, things are going not great, but they're at least better. I just I'm confused about why. I'm not confused. I know why I know why the protests are happening right now, but I'm deeply concerned. I'm especially concerned that this is going to be a fucking gift to Donald Trump, you know, and a lot of people in, in my social media feeds are saying like, this is it, you know, he's out, he's out boys and girls. Like we did it. He's out. You know, these protests are what fucking planet are you on? If you think like historically, that's the most likely reaction to something right. like this. It's just, I mean, the most, the closest parallel we have is 1968 Nixon won in a fucking landslide and Trump has absolutely fucked up the response to this. I will say, I don't think Joe Biden has really proved himself to be a brilliant leader at this moment. He seems to be mostly like in his basement and, or I guess Trump's in his basement too. I don't know where Biden is on his porch somewhere. And then he leaves to go, like go shake hands with black people every once in a while, um, while probably saying something condescending about how they're they're only black if they if they vote for him. Um, so it's this utter failure of leadership, and I'm not sure that that's going to hurt Donald Trump because Democrats don't need to win the cities. They've already won the cities. They need to win these moderate districts and. I think when people are watching the news, especially white people are sitting home watching the news and they see these cities being burned and looted, despite the clear overreaction from the police in some places, they're going to blame Democrats. Well, but it's that same thing of like seeing what you want to see where like totally. even like you said, like a lot of the rioting is completely a uh, a multicultural affair, but um, conservative media is so good at just fucking generating these images of of black people rioting and it doesn't matter what the ethnic divide is because there's this like well-oiled machine that will make it seem like black people are like the problem and i mean at the same time you know left-wing media will do the same thing and blame russians you know or blame white supremacists you know both sides are pushing a narrative that is demonstrably false if you watch you know more than a couple of videos I think what frustrates me is like in a parallel universe where media hadn't gone insane there would be a really good space for experts in this area, historians, sociologists, anyone else to to do that kind of piece where like you take a deep breath and you say, what happened is horrible. Let's look at the numbers. Let's look at where we really need to improve things. And that was sort of what I was referencing in our last episode where I was saying, if you look at the problems with policing, like there are definitely too many shootings and, and I don't think police are trained well, but that's not the the common bad outcomes that really do ruin people's lives don't usually involve getting shot by cops or getting murdered by cops. And I don't see anyone, including some of the most prominent figures in the country doing that. I, it really seems like people have realized their incentives are to paint us as living in this dystopian hellscape that does not really reflect the complicated and flawed, but not dystopian reality. Right. And then there's the other angle, which is the fucking pandemic. I mean, 
like I just stayed home for three months because I was told that, you know, leaving my house to go play tennis was going to kill people, was going to kill grandma. Right. And so either we're going to have a massive spike in COVID deaths in the next couple of weeks, which clearly I don't want to happen. But if we don't have a massive COVID, COVID spike in the next couple of weeks, what does that mean about all, everything that we've been told? Every time that, that, you know, Vox or whoever wrote a piece or The Atlantic published a piece saying that, you know, these, uh, these anti-COVID protests or, or going to the beach or people going to lakes of the Ozarks or whatever were, you know, uh, trying to kill grandma. What does that mean? Like, were they all wrong about that too? It's just yeah, it's just sort of another one of those areas where look, I I, I think like there's probably a safe way to protest outdoors. I think outdoor transmission's trickier, but it's just watching people sort of it, it, it's a little bit Orwellian. We're like the stuff we said two days ago never happened. We didn't say that. It was always this other way. And and I don't want to like lose sight of the more important points, but it's just it's weird watching that process happen. It's like it's like everything you learn about sort of social psychology and political psychology and textbooks, just seeing it unfurl itself in real life on Twitter. It's extremely odd and discomforting. You know, I've, I've made this point on Twitter a couple of times that like, hey guys, you know, the pandemic is still happening. The virus doesn't care if you have a righteous cause or not. Like I, I know that rates of outdoor transmission are supposed to be lower, but if that's the case, then then the football season should be allowed to proceed. Just like make everybody wear a face mask. Um, not that I want the football season to proceed. If football is canceled, I'll be totally fine with that. Sorry, Jesse. Um, but no, Tom Brady's not on the Patriots anymore. I don't like I don't like football anymore. <laughs> oh, so it's fine. Okay, good. Welcome to my team. I don't know. It, it does, just like you said, it just feels very Orwellian. You know, things that we were told were true for the last three months. Well, maybe they're not true and, and that's fine. But like, did we all just forget about it? You know? These bad things in America, like, it's not like you can spend 24 hours every day focusing on coronavirus or focusing on these protests or, or George Floyd. And I do find my mind thinking a lot about journalism and, and we'll get more into this in our Joe Rogan episode, but I just, this sense of, there's still good reporting and good reporters. I've, I've liked reading like the reporting from, from inside the protests and there's like some good analysis of how to improve policing, stuff like that. But a bigger and bigger percentage of it is not good and is not really tethered to reality and is not much different in quality from like just Twitter posts. I don't I don't really understand what the role is of reporters or even sort of opinion writers if if you can get what they're offering just from Twitter anyway. I think there's a real disincentive. I mean, you know this. There's a huge disincentive to do anything but toe the party line. And the party line continues to switch, writing it was fine one day, the next day it was Russians and white supremacists. So you have to like be on your toes a little bit so you can, you know, switch the narrative really quickly. But there's such an incentive, I think a very human one to be on the, on what you feel like is the right side of history, you know? And, and I think there's a, a huge problem with reporters becoming activists. Um, I think post Trump, this got way, way worse. A big problem, a big part of the problem I think is the lack of intellectual diversity, ideological diversity in the media. Basically every, you know, you're, you're put in these camps, right? If you're, a liberal or a progressive or a leftist, you work in liberal, progressive or mainstream media. And if you're on the right, you work in right wing media. And there's just very little overlap between the two. So we just live in this ecosystem where we're all getting different news based on our own preconceived notions of how the world works. And reporters are just perpetuating that over and over and over. And it's just, I just want people to like, 
stand up for the truth and not for the thing that's going to give them the most it's likes. It's just, it seems Twitter. like if progressive media can't be a home for someone who would say, I'm not sure the statistics support like this, this idea about like just a very basic fact where, you know, there are some statistics that are flawed, but we have statistics. It's not like we have to just like guess what the rate of police shootings is. We have numbers and in part because the Washington Post did good journalism on this, but like, man, if, if, that's sort of seen as too like right wing or, or reactionary for progressive journalism where we're so fucked and we're fucked for other bigger reasons, but, but they're connected. And I increasingly feel like I, there's like these, these longstanding decades long conservative distrust of, of mainstream media and increasingly they make points. And I'm just like, I don't really know how to argue with that. Cause I'm not sure it's wrong. I think it was, it was, when it really kicked off with like in the nineties, there was a lot of bullshit there. Cause back then there was a lot more just sort of straight news reporting and they learned how to game the raps conservatives did. But these days, like, I, man, I, it's not good. It's not good. It's not good at all. And I, I increasingly feel out of touch with the people I know because I do things like listen to the fifth column podcast and read people like, John McWhorter and and Coleman Hughes and other black intellectuals who don't sort of toe the party line um, while all of my like well-meaning progressive white friends are reading Robin D'Angelo and Ta-Nehisi Coates and getting totally different messages about the way the world works. Um, It's weird. It feels very weird to be like out of step with um, basically everybody that I know on this and, and a lot of other issues at this point. I went back and I read a, a TNC article about the Ferguson protests and his article basically pointed out that um, the the Obama Eric Holder Justice Department, you know, didn't think that that Michael Brown got shot in the back or that the, yeah. the hands up thing really happened, that there was some evidence to support uh, Darren Wilson's side. Um, I think there's still some ambiguity, but the again, the Obama Eric Holder Justice Department they basically ruled that it wasn't murder or it wasn't like, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, Ta-Nehisi Coates does the intellectually honest thing and he says, you know, yeah, that's, this seems like, it seems like that account was overhyped. And then he goes on to explain the many other ways Ferguson's police department was deeply fucked up, which is what the other independent government investigation found. And that mm-hmm. that's like, to me, um, there's less and less room for that. And and I'm sure we have some like other disagreements with, with ta but that's an example of what it means to have some integrity to say like, look, it's sort of difficult to say this thing because this, this guy has become a symbol, but at some point when we have evidence, we can't just ignore that evidence. And you can always, you can always like making the point that the Michael Brown situation was more complicated. doesn't mean you then can't criticize Ferguson or talk about other root cause issues, People, I'm just not sure he could even he could get away with writing that article today. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And you know, I think one of the other problems with this, this these ongoing protests right now is that they don't seem to have a clear goal. Right, the goal is sort of this. I mean, I think for a lot of people, the goal is to like end police forces entirely, which is not actually going to help low-income and Black communities, if they have no policing, these are also the communities that experience more than their fair share of violence. And when you talk to people who live in these communities, they typically don't say, we don't want no policing. What they say is, we want functional policing. We want better policing. We want to not be you know, harassed by the cops. So we also want to be able to call the cops if something is going wrong. 
And so there's a number of both white and black intellectuals, typically on the left, always on the left, who are talking about things like disbanding police forces entirely. That's not going to help black communities. That's not going to help the crime rate go down. Um, and that's not what they want. There's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a disconnect on both sides where I think some white liberals in particular, they think that every cop is a white, white supremacist and that every, all cops are bastards. Yeah. And then that every black person hates the police and just wants them out of their neighborhood when right. on both sides, the reality is much more complicated and requires a little bit of grappling. Like even something like defunding the police, there was a controversy of the East Bay DSA. I think they ran someone, um, a candidate to run the DSA or something who wanted to defund the, the Oakland police. I looked into the numbers and like, this would involve a huge number of people of color getting fired from good jobs with, I think, with pensions. So that's like the kind of trade-off when you when you step out of fantasy right. world where on the one hand are all black people who don't want policing. On the other hand are all cops or bastards or white. Like, I mean, for one thing, in, in, in situations like Ferguson, the cops were like overwhelmingly white and that was a big problem. But in most like big cities – including the NYPD, it's pretty diverse. So it's like, it's just, it's more complicated than that. Right. And there isn't evidence that white cops are more likely to kill, to shoot and kill black people than black cops are. I mean, there, you know, and maybe you could argue that once you're a cop, you know, um, you know, it's all training, or maybe you have this, this, this a bias that comes out against, you know, low income people or people perceived as criminals or whatever. But that idea that there's this sort of, it's white supremacy, it's always white supremacy. It's just this one flat cause. It just doesn't stand up to scrutiny. But there's a, you know, a cost of saying that. It's also a missed political opportunity because this murder snuff film basically uh, was one of those times when I don't think I saw anybody. I heard Stefan Molyneux actually, Molyneux actually had um, conspiracy theorizing on this. I saw nobody, even far right people defending this or suggesting there was more to the story, right? No, I mean, polling shows that something like almost 80% of people polled said that the guy should have been immediately arrested. Right. And you usually can't get 80% of Americans to agree that like the sky is blue. That's like very, right. I mean, I still think it should be higher in this case, but, um, and there are other people respond very viscerally to these videos, to the worst of these videos, which is good because they're outrageous and we wouldn't have known about them or the cops would have lied if they didn't exist. But again, if you look at the stats they're There's not a, representative of how it of like of everyday okay of everyday no, events. No, I know, but also even the worst ones, even the worst shootings and the unjustified ones are are distributed across races. And if you wanted to actually right. build a movement to figure out why cops are more violent than they need to be, it would be much easier to get white people or even conservatives on board if if you didn't I'm not saying you can't you should talk about race. Race has a role to play, but it's not the whole story. Because again, every year, hundreds of white people get killed by cops. Right. And there are legislative fixes here, right? Washington State, until recently, had a, had a law that made it almost impossible to prosecute cops for any sort of killing because you had to prove malice. And you cannot prove malice for something that isn't you know, clearly uh, premeditated. It's almost impossible to prove malice under any circumstances. So there was a ballot initiative and that law got changed. So there are these legislative fixes, but I'm not sure that mob rule is how you get to those fixes, especially because like in the case of the cop who killed Floyd, he was immediately fired. 
And he's now been arrested and he's probably going to go to trial. And a lot of people are saying now, well, the, you know, I think he got charged with third degree murder. They're saying, no, it should have been first degree murder. Well, the problem with that is that you have to, to, for a conviction, for a first degree murder conviction, you would have to prove that the crime is premeditated. That's would be impossible to do because it probably wasn't. And so then the guy would would get off. So these protesters are making demands that, hey, like, I don't think people should should be charged according to to mob rule. I just I under any circumstances, I don't think that's how it should work. Like prosecutors need to be thorough. They need to look at the evidence. I think it's absolutely appropriate that this guy was charged. But it also sounds like the charge against him was the best possible outcome considering the legal system. And so protesters making these sort of unreasonable demands or just unlikely demands like, you know, defunding police departments entirely. It's never going to happen. Like, what do you expect the government to do in this? I mean, and, and that's one of my concerns here is that there's nothing that any leader can say to end this because there are no clear demands to be met. I mean, you can, you know, a, a lot of people have been talking about qualified immunity. You can do that, right? You can like make these legislative fixes so that police aren't protected. But part of that is going to mean fighting police unions, incredibly difficult to do. And so, okay, you can say uh, police shouldn't be able to unionize anymore. Well, it's not just police who are going to suffer then. It's also all public sector unions if you if you kneecap the ability of unions to negotiate for these things. So it's just way more complicated. And there are fixes, but I'm not sure that these fixes are going to be um, achieved by Riding in the streets. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess a couple of things. One is, um, I'll, I'll just say his name again and root, mess up his name again, but Samuel Sinangwe has been good about on Twitter, like in a sea of just madness and screaming. He's actually had these tweet storms where he mentions specific policies, including ones that have passed and why he thinks they'll help. That doesn't mean I've like vetted every policy he's he's linked to, but I'll include that in the show notes. And I think that's like a much more helpful thing to do right now than like Robin D'Angelo or, or whatever. So, okay. So like in Seattle, so in after 2012, um, Seattle Police Department got put under a consent decree, which is this emphasizes things like de-escalation training, less stop and frisk, making fewer stops. And since 2012, the use of force by police in Seattle has gone down by 60%. You know, so there are That's fixes to these problems. It's huge. That's huge. This is great, right? And other people have argued that consent decree leads to, you know, spike in violence. I think that... I think the data on that isn't quite conclusive because like in Chicago after a consent decree, there was a spike in homicides, but there hasn't been in these other cities. So I'm not sure the data really, really um, plays that out. Um, but there are things that can be done, but they all take legislation. They take federal oversight. They take these sort of big policy issues. And that doesn't happen when like people are burning cities. Sure. I think, well, I mean, I agree with you, but I think we're also like day four, five, whatever day. I've lost all track. We're eight years into this. <laughs> whatever day we're on, like it sort of just happened. So I think the goal is to channel it into something. And that's where it'd be useful to have more like high profile figures who-, who Leadership. Like, yeah. And I'm I'm not sure. Obviously, it's a big, messy country. I just- it's like there's the narrative that we're living in a white supremacist hellscape, and then there's the narrative that things are pretty fucked up, but we have a sign of how to improve them. And I think the latter narrative, if I had to choose one, is a bit A, a bit more accurate, and B, is more likely to motivate people to do stuff other than just protest right. and in outlier cases, riot. Right. So 
what do we do? I mean, obviously, all you and I can do is just like fucking talk about it. But no, I think clearly you and I should be the leaders of this movement. <laughs> yeah, that's what people want. They want the two white people to to be leaders of this movement. The two canceled white people. Um, but just, I think that if people were aware of the statistics now actually i take that back if people were aware of the statistics it wouldn't change anything it's just like climate change like you can show people the graphs and if they don't believe in climate change they're not going to believe in climate change so i don't know i don't know i guess what i try to do when i'm criticizing like d'angelo is i try to get people to like think through okay how is this going to improve things reading another book about white privilege or white fragility draw me a, a causal diagram that leads from you doing this to the world being a better place. And I think if you can get people in that mindset, maybe there's some hope because then you can point to like the specific legislative acts or court acts you mentioned. Um, I just, I just, if people would spend 10% of the time they do on, on performative bullshit on like actual action, it would help. I'm not, I'm just not hopeful. Yeah. You, you know what I'm going to do? When I see my white friends posting anti-racist memes on on, uh, on Instagram and Twitter, I'm going to start um, sending them a link to Syrah Rouse um, to a $2,500 um, white lady re-education sessions. That would be a good use of their money, I think. And then tell them to donate to Blockman Reported. <laughs> well, speaking of which, maybe we should wrap this up here and then stay on. Um, we're going to talk a little bit longer for our patrons. We're going to talk about Antifa which has to be said in an all caps, scary voice. And then I'm actually going to rant a little bit more about Robin D'Angelo. I just want to get, not her in particular, but this whole sort of like white, liberal, bougie, anti-racism scene. I just want to lay out my critiques of that a bit more coherently than I have been on Twitter. So if you're a um, not a Patreon subscriber and you want to hear that, make sure to subscribe. Either way, uh, we appreciate that you listen to us. One more time, we're blockingreportedpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, also, you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Katie, did you have anything else to say to the the steerage class of our listenership, the free subscribers? <laughs> um, no, you are your your people are not no longer worth my time. <laughs> <laughs> Get out of here. Okay, are they gone? Yeah, I think we've gotten rid of all the poor people. <sighs> Thank God. Just, yeah. <laughs> the, the, the smell, like. <laughs> I could hear the mouth breathing. <laughs> As I sit here sweatily, just a disgusting blob of carbohydrates, <laughs> making fun of other people. Okay. So this is sort of the extended episode, the director's cut. Um, I wanted to talk about Antifa a little. Katie, be honest with me. Are you a card-carrying member of Antifa? You know, I would be, but I burned my card in the, uh, in the, the you know, the, <laughs> <laughs> the name of burning shit. I protested police brutality by burning my possessions. Yeah. Um, it is so depressing and telling that there is now another national conversation about Antifa to the point of President Donald Trump issuing these sort of legally meaningless proclamations about designating them a terrorist group, except apparently like AG Barr is now going to like crack down on these people. I guess to me, like it's just very interesting that this small, angry mostly crazy group that I think 90% of the time is live action role-playing and just like pretending to be revolutionary defenders of, of decent people. They've carved out such a big role and it seems like both people on the left and the right benefit from it. Right. Yeah. It's oh God. Antifa is a real, they're a real thing. It is funny to see, but they're not this sort of, you know, like 
massive underground militia terrorizing American cities. I mean, they're basically like the children of doctors and lawyers who come out. Yeah. I'm, I'm serious. Like, like I used to, uh, before I, I got canceled, I, I lived mostly in like queer communities that had a lot of anarchists in them. These are mostly the like college, you know, college educated children of doctors and lawyers and other middle-class white people. Um, I mean, I'm generalizing a little bit, but it's, you know, so stereotypes are often true. some of the videos have been amazing like she wasn't necessarily antifa but there's this incredible viral video of a white girl in a mask trying to spray paint black yeah. blm black lives matter on a starbucks window and this black girl was just like why please don't like you're not helping but right. that to me summed it up a right. little bit there is this also i don't know who's responsible for this um this particular you know uh damage but there's so in raleigh North Carolina, there's the alt weekly there is called the Indie, and protesters on I guess on Saturday night like broke into the building while there was at least one reporter working there, and she then hid in the office. This is a, a paper that has been unequivocally supportive of protest, and they broke in and they just like destroyed oh the paper. God, right it's just uh you know it's that white violence. White people, their skulls are a different shape. It makes them more impulsive. Yeah. It's it's rough. Yeah, it's it's the sunburn, you know. It just makes you mad. <laughs> I think like I remember back when Antifa first burst onto the scene, there was this asinine culture war, war where if you were a pro- progressive journalist in good standing, you had to act like these random privileged schmucks with baseball bats and face masks, just like patrolling cities mostly Portland doing God knows what. That this was like the Lord's work and was definitely good. And it just it gets back to what we we're talking right. about of just like no principles and no coherency because in any other situation you wouldn't be like yes that's good that we have young men in masks just choosing who to inflict violence on right and it is such a turnoff for the people like the normies who live in these cities right i mean in portland portland is a ridiculous city in the first place i lived there in the early 2000s and it was slightly less ridiculous than it is now but it's been ridiculous for a long time and so in portland you know, there's this these wave of protest. I guess this was last year, or the year before. I've lost all concept of time. Um, where Proud Boys, Patriot Prayer, these mostly white guys, not entirely, but mostly white guys from the suburbs and from the rural areas would come into Portland, have their their like silly cosplay rallies, and Antifa would just show up and they would just battle in the streets. And this had nothing to do with with Portland. It had nothing to do with the people there. They were all just sort of arriving you know, playing war. And then the, and then the, you know, the, the right wing LARPers would go back to the suburbs and Antifa would go back to their like group homes or where they, wherever they <laughs> live, their, their parents, mansions. their parents' houses. Yeah. Their parents' mansions and whatever. Um, you know, and it's just like, it, it was just like, go fuck with these cities for absolutely no reason. Nobody asked any of them to come here. Nobody asked them to. And, you know, it just becomes this sort of just like theater. It's this thing where like, so these, some of these sort of sad sack right-wing groups, it'll be like the Eagle Militia and they'll get a permit and they'll want to go fucking stand in a park for an hour, sometimes holding their dumb AR-15s or whatever. And the, my point that I've never really, there's obviously other examples that are legitimately, uh, at least seem a little threatening, like like Charlottesville. They had you know a couple hundred of them, which is still not huge. Whatever. My point is, in most cases, I honestly think from a harm reduction standpoint, just let them do their fucking thing for an hour. This idea that like I agree. these people have such a, an inflated sense of their own importance because they want to be part of a big struggle. But I promise you, 
most of the time, if you show up and try to get confrontation with them, you're increasing the probability of something actually bad happening versus like them just standing in the park. People, people act like the average right wing dumb gun nut group, like does a rally in the park and then fans out into the community murdering people. And that's not really how it works. Right. And I, you know, I can see there are these images of these anti anti lockdown protesters going to places like the Michigan Capitol and and screaming in the faces of cops, and they've all got long guns, and it is a you know remarkable difference to see that and then to see the cops' response when there's you know protesters. Oh, it's insane. Protests. It's totally insane, and it, the optics are fucking terrible. I guess so. It strikes me as reasonable because like some of the crazy videos coming out uh, like this weekend of. Cops seeming to fire tear gas or rubber bullets or other projectiles at people who are at a safe distance from them versus, yeah. again, these images of like the right right wing goons just screaming in their face. Like, why can't they just show that level? I don't want them to shoot anyone in any case. Like, if you're a cop, you should be comfortable getting screamed at. That's part of the job. But like, why can't they show that level of restraint in right, all cases? Right, right. Well, I guess the answer is white supremacy. There's only one answer and it's that. Always. Yes. Well, speaking of which, like, I, I do think the... The this media spotlight on Antifa, which in some cases liberal journalists have used to like trump up the idea that like right wing militias are sort of less goofy and more of a real threat than they are, that has redounded to the right's benefit because now Antifa there's a whole sort of panic on the right about Antifa and and people spreading rumors of them taking over the country, or Andy No sort of or making this his beat, um, and in my view exaggerating the threat of of Antifa, and it's just it's become this sort of ugly circus that I think most people want nothing to do with, but, but media on both sides is just in, intently focused on. Right. Uh, yeah. So Andy, no, for people who aren't aware, he's an uh, independent reporter in Portland. So Andy was beaten by Antifa last year and he has a like very myopic sense of Antifa's power. And I think that's because he's in it and he it's, it's confirmation bias again. You know, if you seek out Antifa doing badly, you will find Antifa doing badly. Um, and Andy does that. And I, I like how heartily disagree with a lot of his tactics. I mean, on Twitter, he often posts mugshots of people who are arrested, either they're Antifa or they're exclusively brown people who've attacked white people. Um, and I just, I like, I hate that shit. It's not helpful. I wish he would, I wish he would stop it. Um, but he does have this, like, he's immersed in, in sort of the Antifa discourse. And, and I, and I will say, like, I think that he's been totally unfairly targeted in some ways. Like there are, there's this, Totally unsourced rumor that that Andy gave a kill list to Offamwad and some like minor Nazi group that I'd never heard of until last year. This has never been corroborated. I find it highly unlikely. Um, I don't think Andy probably actually knows any Nazis. Um, and this just gets repeated, repeated so often it's published in, you know, left wing papers in Portland, particularly the Portland Mercury, as if it were true. Um, and then they'll do things like project Andy, Andy No gives kill list to Alpha Wadden on the sides of buildings in Portland, you know, and this is also like, ironically, like the child of the gay child of Vietnamese refugees. Um, so I, I disagree with a, a lot of like Andy's reporting on this particular issue. I think he's he's been better on on some other things like um 
like hoax hate crimes. I think Andy's one of the few people willing to actually report on that, which I sort of appreciate. But he does have this totally like myopic skewed view on the power of Antifa. And I think Donald Trump might follow his fucking Twitter because Donald Trump also seems to think that Antifa is some like, you know, super army coming for the White House. Or he's just trying to just distract people from the from the actual like problem at hand. Can you imagine Antifa, as we've seen it manifest itself, trying to storm the White House, how long that would last? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm sure that would go really well for them. Okay. So this is very depressing. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to search from real Donald Trump Antifa and see how many tweets he's actually done. This is going to not be fun. Oh, wow. There's only one. It was- uh, Really? No way. He's- it's Antifa. It's Antifa and the radical left. Don't lay the blame on others. But then there was some news coverage about him supposedly designated them a terrorist organization, which I believe is legally impossible. But what people think he's doing is sort of telling Barr to have states investigate these right. guys more aggressively, which was funny because a lot of the same people, uh, I think Joshua Holland pointed this out. A lot of the same people who two, two weeks ago were saying that the it was a terrible impingement on people's rights for the government to ask you to wear a mask are now very excited about the supposed roundup of this vast network of Antifa operatives. So Antifa isn't even an organization. Like, I don't think they're going to find an official fucking no. member list. This is just like people who show up when shit is going wrong. I don't think they have meetings. This is not a collective. This is just a very, very loosely affiliated group of people who like to wear black and fuck shit up. And the problem with this is that, you know, fucking Antifa, like, They'll go into a protest, and I'm not saying that what's happening now is just just the fault of Antifa. I think there's probably a lot of causes, including the fact that people have just spent three months in quarantine and they're going crazy. Um, so this is not – I don't think the fault of the protests are just Antifa. But when the government cracks down on a group like Antifa, a group that, that especially has no actual – organizational structure or official rosters or whatever, they're going to crack down on all protesters. Yeah. It's an excuse to do that. That's how they do this. Right, right. And th so this is one of the problems with 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 violent protests, right? I mean, there's been a lot of research on this. Erica Chenoweth, for, for one, um, she looked at 100 years, a century of protest, and she found that violent protests were less than half as effective at actually at, at succeeding. At, and it, like the reasons for this are obvious, right? Because violent protests, for one thing, it turns off potential allies. So you have all these people at home, like right now, watching the news who might, who might be, you know, be very sympathetic to, to the, to George uh, Floyd's family, who might know that, that police brutality is an issue, who might be sort of, you know, broadly sympathetic to claims of racism. But when they see cities being burned, that's they're not going to be in favor of your cause. You're going to lose their support right there. So that's one problem. It makes it incredibly hard to build coalitions. But the other problem is that it also gives the government an excuse to crack down on peaceful protesters and and protesters of all kinds. Like you're seeing this right now. I mean, Seattle right now, for the last three days, we've had a 5 p.m. curfew, right? A 5 fucking p.m. 5 p.m. Half of the day is, is like it, you are not supposed to be out. And this isn't just downtown. Like this is citywide, right? So right. this is a huge infringement on civil liberties. And this is happening in part because of these violent acts by a small group of people. That's really depressing. Can we – why don't we – do we have anything else to say about Antifa? I just – they're so annoying. <sighs> 
They're, you know, they're so fucking annoying. They're so Come and get us, Antifa. Annoying. Should we antagonize Dude, Antifa more directly? Antag- Antifa has, has, has tried to come for me because of, like, my reporting in Seattle and because I was specifically critical of Antifa. I, you know, I don't think they're the people who put up the stickers calling me a Nazi. I think that was a group, a different group of dumb fucks. Um, you know, so I will say that they, Antifa might say they're coming for you, but at least in my case, they've had very little power. I'm glad to hear that. I hope you remain safe from Antifa. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Okay, why don't we finish up? I, I just want to tell you a little bit more about Robin D'Angelo because maybe I'm being like oh, please do. too defensive here, but I think on Twitter I come across as like fixated on this this sort of white anti-racism stuff that people might be like, why would you be against that? Or like, why are you so angry about it? And I've done a fair amount of reporting on like this sort of new innovations and in how to teach people about racism and how to fight it. I wrote a really long piece about the implicit association test. I did a story about microaggressions trainings. So my baseline is just a certain skepticism about this area because I think people are so desperate for answers. They'll sort of gobble up whatever experts put out there. And and there's just so little evidence about what works. So I'm coming at this from a place of fundamental skepticism. Then with people like Robin D'Angelo if you read her book, there's just such weird advice and it seems so disconnected from what people in the real world want. I mean, so at one point she says that white women shouldn't cry in interracial settings and having like race specific codes of behavior does not strike me as a realistic way of existing in the world. It strikes me as sort of overly reductive and backwards and also performative because like what is that doing? You're not crying. She she mentions how when she starts crying, she'll accept comfort from a white person, but not a black person because she doesn't want to be a burden for them, which to me <laughs> is like the black person is if they want to hug you, let them hug you. It's not your job to say that they shouldn't. I mean, it's just so you get how weird this is, right? I think it's incredibly weird. I also I mean, I also don't entirely understand what this like. It's like she's she is the one weaponizing white tears, right? Yeah, I know that's a good point. She, I don't look. I think she thinks she's helping, but I'm from an upper middle class suburb with a lot of white liberals, like overwhelmingly liberal. Probably one of the most liberal suburbs in the country. There is not a dearth of like thinking and talking and reading about race relations. White liberals are obsessed with it. The problem is we don't really do anything about it. We're we're solipsistic and we're narcissistic and we could never stop being fascinated with like the inner contents of our own minds. And the reason like George Floyd was murdered and the reason people are locked up for bullshit reasons, the reason for the war on drugs is not primarily about white liberals innermost thoughts about race and like whether we've checked our privilege enough or whether we exhibit white fragility. That doesn't mean there aren't like white liberals who are shitty coworkers to people of color or say the right things or microaggress, but the the sheer obsession white people have on their own minds when there's so much like to do out in the world to improve things. I I think that's what I find not just like ineffectual about this, but a little bit offensive because anyone who's been following this conversation for decades, it, it's just not the case that white liberals have not wanted to read and talk about this stuff that we're obsessed with. It. It's, it's like, it, it's just a lot of pointless talk. It doesn't go anywhere. You know, I can see why white liberals think that, think that like their own personal sort of implicit bias um, or is the biggest deal or why they like need to reeducate themselves because this, is a message that you get across the media. It's a message you get from, you know, people like Robin D'Angelo and everybody who puts Robin D'Angelo up on a pedestal. Black people talk about microaggressions, right? 
especially affluent black people, black people who work in the media. That, no, there's a huge club. There's a huge class. Right. Thing that, that I right. Right. No, exactly. Like black people like in sort of the in the office spaces that are dominated by white people, black people in media, black people in academia, black people in universities. The problem, the, the, the racial tension in most of these situations in these, you know, liberal spaces is going to be microaggressions, not overt racist hostility for the most part. And so if those are the places where white people exist and what they're hearing about is things like microaggressions and reading Robin D'Angelo, it's not hard for me to see why they think this is the, you know, the right thing to do as a white person. But they're also like, I say they, I could just as easily say we, we're a little bit full of shit because if you actually believe that there's a white supremacy crisis in the U S and there's an inequality crisis, what are you doing in a liberal white suburb with your kids in a very white school? Why are you not fighting to change the property taxes? And why are you not like taking your tax money downtown to like a, a more mixed school? There's such a staggering divide between how white liberals live their lives. And plenty of leftists have pointed this out. This is not an original point. But this divide between how we live our lives and the stuff we say and that's the other thing I find a little bit offensive. Like you're, you're sitting around in your nice house. You're, you're inviting Sarah Rao to come and lecture you about racism. And then she leaves and you're still living in a white segregated suburb. It, you can't have it both ways. You can't say this is incredibly important to you and you want to look within yourself and you want to dedicate yourself to anti-racism, but then just treat it as a, as a recreational thing. It, it almost, there's more integrity to almost being like, well, you know, there's a lot of racism in the world, but life is short. I'm not sure how much I can do about it. I, I, I res- in a weird way, I respect that stance more than we're living in a white supremacist nightmare. What am I going to do about it? I'm going to buy Robin D'Angelo's book. I'm going to post a meme about it. There's this this, this sort of quintessential scene in Seattle where in the neighborhoods that were historically black that have been gentrified over the past couple of years, you'll see these, you know, new housing, huge places, these police, palatial, you know, uh, not mansions, but big places like for an urban environment. And you know that a black family or a minority family before this, it was the neighborhood I'm speaking of before was before it was black. It was the, the Jewish neighborhood. But you know that over the years, poor people have been pushed out of these neighborhoods or have been bought out of these neighborhoods in some cases. And you'll see this, this giant house, and you know, there's a white family living in it. And you know that they are gentrifying this neighborhood. And then there's a black lives matter sign in the window. Yeah. Yeah. Which again, like whatever, if that was like, if that was just one aspect of it, it wouldn't be a big deal. But you also, uh, back home where I'm from, you see a lot of refugees are welcome here signs. Right. In like Lily White suburban boss. It's like, well, no, they're not. Cause there's not, they're routed to like poor neighborhood. Like it's just, there's a disingenuousness among people of my, I don't know, class or ilk. And I think if people were not sanctimonious pricks about this, if there wasn't that whole, like, Oh, so it sounds like you're not really committed to anti-racism. I wouldn't be as annoyed at it, but it's just, it's become this like really big movement that I think is sanctimonious and pointless and distracting. And if you read like um, uh, this, this one book by Elizabeth Lash Quinn, just on sort of the history of race training, this stuff has always been around. There've always been sort of entrepreneurs offering to help lift white people out of their ignorance. And there's, there's never any evidence it works. And there's always a new thing a few years from now. Like just in our lifetime, what has it been? It's been like checking your privilege for a while was a really big thing. We still talk about privilege, but not as much. Then it was the implicit association test. Then it was microaggressions. 
now it's white fragility. Like there'll be some new thing tomorrow, right? I would love to know how many books Robin D'Angelo has sold this this week. I mean, if anybody oh benefits from these protests, it is going to be fucking Robin D'Angelo. Yeah. I just I just wanted to turn out that she voted for Trump. That would be incredible. <laughs> <laughs> it turns out she wrote Well, she lives in Seattle, though. She'd be the only one. Actually, it turns out she's actually been uh driving all his immigration policy. It's not Stephen Miller. <laughs> Oh, that would be the perfect 2020 outcome. Okay. Well, I mean, yeah, I guess I got my rant out. I'll probably just continue ranting. Maybe I'll write about it at some point in the, I don't even know what outlet at this point would run like a critical, but still anti-racist look at this stuff. Oh, dude. Good luck with that. Maybe the- the uh, um, American Renaissance. <laughs> yeah. The, the American like, Nazi magazine. Yeah. You say, American, hey, Stormfront, are you interested in that? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Take on the limitations of modern anti-racism. <laughs> they might publish you just for that. That'd be, you'd be their first Jew. Oh God! Uh, all right. Well, should we wrap this up? Yeah. Let's uh, let's retire. Thank you very much for uh, for giving us your money, everybody. And yeah. we will have more stuff for you guys soon. Thank you. This has been blocked and reported. I'm Jesse Single, and remember, rioting is good, except when it's bad. Except when it's good. Except when it's bad. And I'm Katie Herzog. And also remember, we just need to disband the police force and replace them with Antifa. Mm-hmm.